righty, we are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. Life treating you well so far this week, brother. It is, brother. It is treating me really well. How about yourself? Doing really well. I'm debating following your lead and deleting my Facebook account. You just did that, and I don't really know what to make of it, man. I don't know what I'm going to do mm. without your banter and your posts and everything else that you make every day. I'm, I'm feeling lost and untethered and, un, and just unruttered, man. I don't know what I know. to do, but you I was, said it went was, well for you, though, right? I'm I'm so glad. I think I've had the best day today I've had in years, at least at least since I've had Facebook. So it's been awesome. Getting getting off of social media is fantastic. Well, I'm, I wish I were as brave as you are, but brother, it's it's a hard thing for me to do. And maybe I will next year when I get a little more brave about it. But in any case, I'm going to stay on just so I can promote our podcast. And so I can especially promote this episode because today we have a very, very special guest joining us. We're really excited to have him on. And if I'm going to be honest, I'm fanboying a little over here. Uh, joining us today is... Jared Bias. He is a former teaching pastor and professor of philosophy and biblical studies. Uh, many of our listeners will probably know him from the podcast that he co-hosts, uh, The Bible for Normal People. He also co-authored the book Genesis for Normal People, and we're having him on in this episode to discuss a book that he wrote and recently published called Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And when I saw that title and I saw the name of the author, I knew I had to pick it up. So, Jared, thank you so much for taking time out of your life to join Kevin and I on our on our podcast tonight. Absolutely. Thank you guys uh, for having me. It's uh, I love being able to talk about this stuff. Man, we are super thrilled that you were willing and able to do so. And one of the things that, like I said, that really jumped out at me about the title of your book is that subtitle, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And that hit me really hard because I don't know if you spent any time perusing our podcast at all that Kevin and I have got going, or if you looked us up to make sure we weren't a couple of shysters or anything before you agreed to be on. But Kevin and I had a lot of experience in our uh, previous theological trajectory about in fighting to be right. That, for me at least, is what encompassed my Christianity and my walk with God more than anything else. I wasn't really walking with God as much as I was working to walk with the facts and trying to be right. And there was a great emphasis placed on having the right doctrine and having the right set of beliefs and having the right theology and doing the right things in the right ways. And that was what my faith for so long rested upon. And everyone else that didn't do it my way was an enemy. And I know Kevin can speak to that as well because he was way worse about it than what I was. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually, uh, Jared, have invited you on so that we can convert you to our way of thinking. So I'm glad that you joined our show, and we're going <laughs> to we're going to speak the truth in love to you by telling you the truth. And uh, of course, we have a corner on truth; we always have. Uh, and so mm. we're glad to sh we're glad to share that with you tonight. <laughs> yeah, the, you know the old the old uh, the old bait and switch. I'm I'm quite familiar, actually. <laughs> no, you know yeah. it's it was interesting when I was reading your book, and uh, you you really focus a lot on Ephesians four fifteen, speaking the truth in love. And I wrote an article. Oh, this has been probably about twelve years ago when I was what I call very legalistic, and and I used to do a lot of formal debating and things of that nature. And I really convinced a lot of people, including myself, that speaking the truth is what matters. And it doesn't really matter how you do it as long as your your motivation, quote unquote, is love. So it may look like you're just ripping somebody apart, but as long as you tell them that you love them, 
then that's okay. And I know in your book you go into uh, quite quite a bit of detail, kind of unpacking that whole whole verse there. Yeah, I mean that was the the impetus in a lot of ways for the book was recognizing that uh, many people had said that phrase to me in my life and almost always meant it as a weapon against me. And it just didn't seem to be uh, right or appropriate. And so looking into the context, I wanted to understand what is Paul talking about in Ephesians 4? And how does that square with what we find in the rest of the Bible in this relationship between truth and love? So with that being the impetus for what drove you to write that book, how hard was it to move away? Because based on some of the reading between the lines and other things that you've said on the Bible for normal people, it it seems as though that you were probably in a state theologically, if I can use that word, similar to how Kevin and I were in pursuing truth at all costs, even to the destruction of relationships, even to the destruction of other things with truth being predicated on that, that construct of having all of the right thoughts and ideas, et cetera. And you met, you talk briefly in, in the book and you touch on that a little bit, but what did that trajectory look like for you coming out of that and, and approaching Christianity in a more love focused and Christ focused manner? What, how, how did that go for you? Yeah, it didn't go well. I mean, I think a lot of times our transitions in how we think about God and the Bible and Jesus come from these experiences that often aren't all that positive, to be honest. And for me, it was the recognition, which I'm very grateful that I had the recognition of the wherewithal to see the pain that I was causing other people. I was a know-it-all pastor in my 20s, and everyone had to agree with me. And if you didn't, you weren't as good as a Christian. And, And sort of, I was the the paradigm for what a good Christian looked like. And and that hurt people. And I was grateful that people were able to come to me and tell me that I had hurt them. And that wasn't my heart. That wasn't my intention. And so I had to start rethinking the paradigm and had to start rethinking how I practice my faith and that perhaps what I was really trying to do was mask up my, uh, my own insecurities and my need for control and my need to feel safe. And I was using God and certainty to do that. Well, I think we all try to pursue certainty. I know whenever my certainty was rocked, which is something that Kevin and I have discussed on this podcast and that I talked about in the solo episode I did some weeks back, that whenever my certainty was rocked, it it shook my entire paradigm. And I had to, from that rubble, begin to reconstruct what faith should be and what it should look like. And so many of the answers that were satisfactory to me because I had never really dug into them, they just weren't satisfactory anymore. It just, it just didn't work anymore. And so a new way forward had to be forged. And in that process is when Kevin and I, who had been friends before we had reconnected, he had gone through a similar experience and, and it's, it's just been, like you said, it's not easy. It's, it's not an easy journey. But it is a rewarding journey, and it's one that ends well if we pursue it in love, as your book talks about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jared, Jared, one of the things when I was reading your book that really, really just made a huge impact to me, because I think a lot of people don't get this, and until they get this, they really can't move forward, and that is certainty is nothing more than a feeling. And I love the way that you describe that, because how many times have we been certain about something and then we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. It seems like it seems like such a simple thing to to unfound or to disprove. Like, well, have you ever felt certain and been wrong? Yeah. Okay. So then what is certainty if not just a feeling? <laughs> and and I think that's what helps people 
that's what helped me open up because I believe that I had the truth on all things, pretty much at least all the things that I believed were pertinent to salvation, which is interesting because I also believe that I had all the things that you were supposed to know in regards to what was pertinent to salvation. And so it's this complete feeling that I've got everything figured out. But when holes start being poked into this whole ideology of I have everything figured out and I know that I know that I know that I know, and then you look back and go, whoa, but I was wrong. All of a sudden, that opens you up, I believe, as you pointed out in the book, to to look at things from a different light. And so can you maybe explain some of the ways in which you started discovering in your own your own journey, especially coming from the, the typical 20-year-old pastor that's got all the answers to, wait a minute, maybe I don't have all the answers. What was really the, the, the turning point for you, or at least something that started, uh, started getting you think, to think differently about that? Uh, well, yeah, the first thing was I went to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> that helped me recognize I didn't know as much as I thought I did uh, from the beginning. But then, you know, it really was a gradual transition for me to, um, I think it went from my head to my heart. And that's how I would explain it. That may not be true for other people, but if you would have asked me if I knew everything and if I was, you know, on top of the all the theology I needed to be, I would have said no. I would have been humble. I would have feigned humility. <laughs> but ultimately, it, I didn't behave that way. And it's because for me, I think it was a heart issue. And that's what I hope to get around at in the book, is it's, this isn't about changing our minds about something. It's about these deep, transformative experiences that change and shift our paradigm for what we think matters when it comes to relationships and God and faith and church and community, it's it's not something you know. I think you were talking about it, Lee, earlier about this experience, this thing that shook your foundations, and that's often what it is. It's it's an experience. It's something that happens to us. You know, a lot of people use the word deconstruction, and they say when I deconstructed, and I I have a lot of problems with that phrase. I don't I don't like it at all. But one thing I always say is, no, deconstruction, if it's anything, it's something that happens to you. It's not something that people choose to do. Um, so it happens upon us. And these experiences then reframe how we think. We can't help but come to conclusions that says these old answers no longer fit these new wineskins that have been placed in my lap through these life experiences. And that's what happened to me. And there's a lot of people, whenever they begin to go through those experiences, I know my first initial response to that was to bury my head in the sand and just try to hide from it and ignore it and pretend like it would go away like a rotting albatross hanging around my neck, like I'm some kind of ancient mariner, something to that, something to that degree. And that's because of that paradigm in which I existed. The emphasis was on truth. It was on doctrinal practice and on doctrinal ideology and having the appropriate set of beliefs and practices on certain things. And that made it a hard pill for me to swallow. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people tend to resist those hard things and those paradigm shifts. And either they break down and they leave faith behind entirely or they just remain entrenched in where they are and they dig deeper. Why do you think so many Christians emphasize that truth over loving like Jesus? Why is that so hard for people in, in your experience? Well, it's very foundational to our identities and our emotional makeup. I think that drive for certainty is a drive for safety and belonging and security. And to change our mind about things 
so foundational to us, it, it threatens those things. And so I think that we come by it honestly as humans that we we like to think that, you know, we like to feel secure and knowledge helps us feel secure because, you know, as Francis Bacon and everyone after him for the last 300, 400 years have said, you know, knowledge is power and that power helps yeah. us feel in control. And so I, I just don't think we can divorce it. This isn't an intellectual exercise. And to that, you know, I think what you said earlier is when the shit hits the fan of our life, it turns out that ideas don't help that much. What yeah. helps are real flesh and blood relationships and people who love us in community and support us and accept us no matter what we're going through, no matter the upheaval or the disorientation or the doubts. Those people who show up for us are what matter. And that's when we recognize that maybe an emphasis on what's true and what's right and the right beliefs comes up bankrupt in those hard times of life, which I think Christianity is built for those hard times of life, because guess what? If we learned anything in 2020, it's that life is tough. <laughs> that is the truth, brother. And, and one of the things, Jared, I, I really like about the book is the realness that you write with, because I know for myself, there was all these expectations that were put on me when I was ministering. And oftentimes, you know, you put on yourself because you think that you have to live up to this certain expectation. And so it really doesn't allow you to be real. And that usually is not just within ministry, but also just congregants. It's this idea of just putting on and making sure that they are agreeing to the right doctrines. They may have not even studied these things out. I really don't even know much about them, but oh yeah, I've kind of checked marked these and so therefore I'm a Christian and one of the one of the examples that I can think of in my life that when I was reading your book again came to my mind is uh, when I was ministering at a congregation there was a 15-year-old girl who uh, ended up dying she was um she had an illness and unexpectedly ended up dying and it was a horrible 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 just kind of the whole situation the way it unfolded was just really really bad and and I had a conversation with her father and uh, you know, he told me that he really never had faith until that moment because he said, you know, I've been coming to church all my life and now, and he, and he for lack of better words, had always been kind of half in and half out. And he said that now he saw the love that everybody had there. And he said that is what really sustained his faith. It wasn't having all these doctrinal answers. It wasn't going to church day in and day out and feeding your mind with just dry facts it was seeing that love played out when it really mattered the most. And so that's one thing I really like about your book. It's reality. It's not just, well, let's, let's turn to, you know, Jared's book here and look at what he says about this. I mean, this is real stuff that people deal with. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's valuable to recognize around the, you know, the, the focus again on truth. It's that it, it's a little bit s sneaky, this ideology, for me growing up, it was the belief that, yes, love matters more, love is the most important thing, but the scaffolding that holds up love is doctrinal rightness. If yeah. we don't get the doctrine right, we won't be as loving. And I think that's absurd at this point. It felt so right when I was growing up. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because, you know, if you don't believe in God, you're all just going to go, uh, you know, kill and murder and rape people because that's what you do when you don't believe the right thing. <laughs> and it's just absurd when you start running into atheists and Buddhists and Baha'i and these people of other faiths who are kind and compassionate and loving, and you recognize that love matters more. And, and 
I, not to say that our beliefs aren't important or that they don't shape our behavior, but I've known a lot of very Jesus-like people in my life who were devoted to Jesus and devoted to the church who would have no concept of the things that I thought was most important, like predestination and, you know, superlapsarianism and pre-tribulation eschatology and blah, blah, blah. Like, they had no idea. They would literally wave their hand in my face, these 80-year-old women, and say, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. But you know what? They, they would be the first in line to help anyone in need. And that's that's what changed my mind about things. Well, and absolutely. And, and those those 80-year-old grandmothers and great-grandmothers in our churches who are grandmothers to everyone, God love them. I mean, without them, mm-hmm. what would we do? I mean, where would we get hard candy? Where would we get gum? You know, where would we receive <laughs> the little love? Orange, the little orange and black trick-or-treat candy that you chew on forever. <laughs> it stays in your teeth for like a month after you eat it. Dude, that stuff... Oh well, man, I know, have one I of those cavity out. Oh, I grew rough. up in, uh, in uh, as a Southern Baptist, so we had our Sunday potlucks, and the grandmas really came in handy for that stuff. <laughs> oh, dude, you say potluck, and it's on, man. That's that's one thing that that the Baptists and the Churches of Christ definitely have in common. We know all know how to throw a potluck, man. <laughs> but even even so, though, there's still even with those little old ladies and those and those folks within our congregations that don't really have you know much of a grasp on the the details and the minutiae of theology and all of those finer points. You still have people that hold a great deal of sincerity within the paradigm in which they exist. And in that there's a conflation with getting truth with all of the particular doctrinal ideals and worship practices that someone ascribes to as that is truth. And that's the ultimate expression of truth. And they say, well, look at what Jesus said. You know, they, they go in and start to proof text like I did so much. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that truth is all of those doctrinal beliefs um, in, in chapter four of your book, you talk about how believing isn't enough, that you have to put faith into action. You quote James, you know, well, you believe, yeah, that's nice. The demons do that. Big deal. What else you got? Mm-hmm. Um, faith has to be put into action. And I know within the churches of Christ, we agree with that. And that's there's no disagreement there whatsoever. But that action is so often viewed as doing the right rituals and having the right worship practices the right way. And I know within our tradition, it, it started back in the 1800s with the restoration movement with Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and this big revival where you had these, these preachers who said, you know what, let's not be Presbyterians anymore. Let's not be Baptists anymore. Let's not be Methodists anymore. Let's just be Christians. Let's do away with these creeds and let's just unite under the banner of Christ. But over the years, division crept in. You had division over whether instrumental music was allowable or not, division over what the church money can be used for, division over how the communion should be observed and what elements constitute a binding doctrinal element. You have all of this division that's taken place and people have entrenched themselves even further into those camps. So the idea of, of observing the truth and just believing it not being enough, we would say that in observing those truths and those practices, we are knowing the truth and we do have the truth. But in, in your book, you speak to the idea about love being that structural undergirding and critical component of the truth and that in keeping with Jesus's declaration of knowing truth, it really doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Could you, could you speak more to, to that idea? 
Yeah, it's interesting that we have still have this impulse to get Jesus right, even though looking historically, I mean, not even historically, if we look right now, I think there's over 33,000 Christian denominations right now, all of whom kind of think that they got it right. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, to that to that point, I mean, I think one of the things that really paradigm shift for me was in reading John 8, which is where that phrase comes from, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, interestingly, if you read the context of that, that's a very Jewish Jesus is is really poking at at the Jewish audience there that that uh, really the Jewish pastors of his day, um, who they come back very defensively and say, well, you know, we've never been slaves of anyone since we were set free in Egypt and um, all this stuff. But anyway, besides that, we it's an interesting phrase there because it can go one of two ways. Which the first way of how I grew up with it, you will know the truth, and it kind of goes back to that idea we were just talking about, where that's the scaffolding. If you know the truth, then you're going to find freedom. It's inevitable. Jesus says it. So just focus on the truth and the freedom stuff will come. And the challenge with that is it wasn't my experience. Knowing more about what I was supposed to do and like you're talking about those those rituals and I would call them the moralism, um, you know, don't drink, cuss or chew or go with girls who do. That's what we had in Texas. That was our. Um, <laughs> we have it in Oklahoma too, baby. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that kind of thing didn't feel freeing to me. It felt like a trap. Somehow obeying all these rules was, we, you know, I grew up with, we shunned the law. We don't, we don't practice the law anymore. We have grace. Well, what's grace? Well, grace is if you just believe these 19 things and if you practice these 37 <laughs> moral rules, you'll find freedom. And yep. that makes zero yeah. sense to me. Um, so, but now that sounds like law. Oh, don't you dare. That's not a law. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it, dude. It's, it's actually an expression of our love because of the grace we do these things. Like that, that's just semantics at this point. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so what it looked like for me was taking this phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free is to say, well, if that is true, um, then we can flip that and say, well, if it doesn't set us free, then it's not true. And I would rather have my emphasis be on that lived experience of freedom than this esoteric thing in our head. So with a litmus test for me, rather than the other way around, now became, if it doesn't set me free, if it doesn't set those people in my life, those people in the community, those who are historically marginalized, anyone, if it doesn't set them free, I'm not going to count that as true. Well, well so I think many, that's brilliant. Oh, go ahead, brother. Sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to say, so many people in the Churches of Christ, including myself, when we would study that, that's the exact same feeling I know that I have experienced and did experience, and which was another reason why I started to question, because I started to realize the more I studied, the more I did not know. And the more I did not know brought more questions and doubt. And the more questions and doubt meant maybe I wasn't saved, because in order to be saved, I have to have everything figured out. So what that ends up doing is a couple things. If people see where that's leading to, and I have actually spoken to some of my friends, I would say former friends, but I still consider them friends. They may not consider me friends anymore. But when we were friends and preaching buddies, they would have this idea that, hey, I see where this is going. And so I'm just not going to pursue that anymore. And they'll remain comfortable. Lee had talked about that earlier, just bury your head in the sand. But then the other other place that people go with that is they try to take that to the logical conclusion. And that is, I do have to continue going down this rabbit hole. And I have to figure everything out, which leads to 
extreme arrogance because I was so arrogant. And the reason why is because I believed my salvation was predicated on me having everything right. The only way I could believe I was saved is by also believing I had everything right. And that does not produce humility. That produces arrogance. And you talk a little bit about that in the book, too. How do you see that playing out today in the Christian community with it with people the more convinced they are that they are right and they have cornered truth exclusively how do you see that playing out in in reality with people and maybe you can give me a little a context a little bit more context um i mean what would be an example of how you would see that playing out in your context yeah so for example when i uh several years back which i've I started changing about six years ago and I started blogging about it and everything and so I had one preacher he he wanted to meet with me and 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 he and I were just having this conversation because I had written an article called "Does God's Grace Cover Doctrinal Error?" <laughs> and of course, my conclusion was, well, of course, and so he wanted to meet with me because you know this was heresy, and he said, Kevin, you can't teach God's grace covers doctrinal error." And I said, why is that? He said, well, because grace is only granted to us when we do everything correctly. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, <laughs> I said, is, is there anything currently? And, I, and I'm not, I promise, honest to goodness, I'm not exaggerating this conversation. I said, is there anything currently you could be doing in ignorance? Now, obviously, that's a tr- that's a question where he's trapped because I and I and I said it to him that way because I was hoping he was going to see where I was going with this because if you're doing something ignorantly, you wouldn't know. This is what he said. He goes, "No, there is no way I could ignorantly be doing something that could keep me out of heaven right now because I know the truth. I have the truth, and I see this happening not just in the churches of Christ, but." As there are more people like yourself and, and, and us who are starting to become more open-minded about these approaches to Scripture and, and changing them and starting to shift our paradigms, I see a lot of evangelicals digging their heels in even more, saying, no, we've got to even defend this stuff even more so. And so, so that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about is just the, the danger in believing that and how that not only affects you internally, but how that really just affects your whole community as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it, it it sets you up as being infallible and a conflation of God. I mean, at that point, you're you're setting yourself up as God, which seems to be quite dangerous in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I, you know, and I think it it also is the way you articulate it is actually really helpful. It's that we have we have actually subverted the idea of grace, and we've imputed into that. Grace now equals non-grace around doctrine. Yeah. So, and and that is, it's very tricky for people who who maybe don't can't wrap their minds around sophisticated concepts, and I think that's dangerous um, to put that on people. I feel like that's one of those burdens that uh, Jesus talks about. Um, yeah, it and, doesn't set you free. No, it certainly does not. Yeah, and and it's not about that. I mean, I I'm thinking uh, I keep thinking in our conversation here about a conversation that uh, that Paul has in in Corinthians and First Corinthians eight, and he starts this chapter by saying, "Listen, now, okay, we've had this conversation in previous times about food sacrificed to, to idols. All right, we know that quote, and he puts it in quotes. We all possess knowledge, right? So okay, so we all know that this isn't the thing that we think it is." But guess what? His next verse. But knowledge puffs up while love 
builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So this is a powerful three verses around what you just said, which is those who think they know something don't yet know. It's like the Dunning-Kruger effect, Paul style. And whoever, whoever loves God is known by God. I love that switch that Paul's talking about knowledge. He starts with saying, yeah, you know what? We all know, but guess what? Knowledge puffs up. We're not after knowledge. We're after the love that builds up. So if you think you know something, you de- don't yet know it as you think as you ought. And then he flips it and says, whoever loves God is known by God. So it's not about what we know. It's about who knows us. And I think that's grace. Well, and it's almost like Paul's saying that love matters more there, wouldn't you Wouldn't you say? Almost. Almost. That would be a great book title. It would be. It, it would yeah. be excellent. Yeah. But one of the things that you were saying whenever you were you were talking about that idea of conflating truth and you shall know the truth and truth will make you free and truth leading to freedom. And if it doesn't make me free, it must not be true. One of the concerns that that I can see some people having and that that I would have had before and in conversations that I have had recently is the idea that, well, this just seems like it opens up the door to anything goes. And it's, it's almost like you're saying that that truth is going to become subjective and that we're not able to grasp truth or reality as it is. And in your book, you even, you even make that statement that we're not able to grasp truth or reality as it is. And that really freaks people out in evangelical circles, especially in conservative evangelical circles, because it correlates with the postmodernism. And I know whenever I first, you know, became a part of the churches of Christ, we have these events in our particular fellowship called preacher studies, where you'll go and all these preachers get together. And there was one of them that, had an entire evening devoted to how evil and wicked and dangerous postmodernism is because the idea is, is that you can't really ascertain truth from the Bible and there is no truth. Oh, there's no truth. Throw up your hands and, no, and, and just anything give up. goes, it goes back to, you know, let's go and rape and kill everybody. anything goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it, it, I mean, and that may be true for you, Kevin, but it's it just, it's not true for me. So, but, but I guess I would, is postmodernism because I, I know you, you have a lot of experience in philosophy and you know way more about that than I do, is postmodernism that that evil entity and that evil ideology that it's made out to be in conservative circles? And do you think that the Bible gives us access to absolute truth? Would you say that the Bible is more of a modern book or postmodern book? And I think I already know the answer to that question, but I want to ask you anyway, just for the sake of conversation. Well, you so we're going to run through a quick survey of the history of postmodernism in philosophical thought, and then we're <laughs> going to talk about the Bible and what it is. Okay, yeah. We'll Excellent. Just, yeah. You yeah. Know, do, that and do that. Yeah. Two minutes, man. <laughs> You've got two. We got a schedule to keep here, baby. Come on. Chop, chop. Um, no, I mean, you know, there, there is a lot there. And I think the, once, the first thing is to be very careful that we don't, which is something we do a lot in our current day and age, which is use a straw man argument. So what happens yeah. a lot of time is we take someone who may be on the fringes of postmodern thought, and then we say that this is characteristic of postmodern thought and say, yeah, so we should just do away with all postmodernism. And I think that's just unhelpful because for me, postmodernity has actually been a helpful corrective to our modern pride and arrogance. And we have to be careful when we use the word truth because it packs a lot of punch. It means a lot of different things. So if we say we can't, basically what I hear people say when they get upset, when I say we don't have access to absolute truth, I hear a perfectionist talking, someone who says, well, if we can't have it all, we can't have any of it. 
And I think that's just not true. Life in general tends to be less black and white than that. It tends to be more gray. And I think that's true when it comes to truth. And I really appreciate that because, of course, things are true. Things are true and we can get at them more or less. But it's more like we are in a in a room with the lights off and it's full of furniture. The reality is the furniture. We're going to bump up against it. There's no, you know, you go stand out on the road and you get hit by a truck. There is no, well, that's not my <laughs> truth that there's no truck out there. I mean, it doesn't really matter. The truck's not going to care if you don't believe in it or not. However, you know, those you, we will bump into those things. But to think that we can see it all clearly and we know exactly what the furniture is in the room is, I think, just it's again, it's being blinded by our own arrogance. And that's that's dangerous because then we don't see that there are other ways of looking at things than just our own perspective. So I don't think we have access to absolute truth, but I would reject the conclusion that therefore we have no access to truth at all. Okay. So if the Bible doesn't provide us with absolute truth in a complete sense of, of how most people take it. What does that mean for how we understand truth in general? And, and you talk about that in, in, in your book at length, and I think it's an excellent treatment of it. But yeah, yeah. let's whet the appetite for our listeners so they'll buy it. Well, I think, <laughs> yes, exactly. Can you, can you go ahead and just read the whole book? That way you, they don't have to they buy it. They can just hear you. <laughs> nice. Um, that would be, I would be actually, I would really respect anyone who had me on a podcast and says, well, I'm just going to have you read. Just read. For 30, 40 minutes, and I'll, I'll tell you when to stop. Um, we'll make that our next episode. Yeah, nice. No, go ahead, brother. Uh, Sorry. So, no, I think, you know, it's just breaking it down into three, into the three categories I think of in terms of truth. So we have facts, we have meaning, and we have wisdom. And I think that's really important when we talk about what is the Bible in relationship to truth. Is the Bible true? And I think the, the answer to that is yes and no. And that might be hard for people to understand who think of truth in one way. But if we think of it in terms of, does, does the Bible get all of its facts right about how the world works? I would say no, because the Bible was made in ancient times with ancient culture, and God is such that God writes and speaks on a level. I think John Calvin says God lisps to us as though we are babies. And uh, you like oh, how not, I threw John, John Calvin not, in there? Yeah, not John Calvin, man. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I, I throw that, that in there just for anyone uh, <laughs> for anyone who thinks I'm just making this up right now and it's some wishy-washy new age thing to say, um, that God speaks to us as though we are babies. This is not a new way of thinking. And that is, you know, through the history of the church, you would be amazed at the church fathers and who thought that the Bible doesn't get it all right when it comes to the facts of the world. And, you know, we have two creation accounts that have different details in it. We have four Gospels that sometimes have different details. And so we maybe instead of being scared about that, maybe we should let the Bible tell us what it should mean rather than us trying to put our modern categories on it. And in that way, it resists this dichotomy. And we have to ask, well, is the Bible meaningful? And by truth, do we have meaning? And I would say it's absolutely meaningful. Um, and But I think the most important part is not either one of those, but is the question of, is it compelling us to live a life of truth? And that's wisdom, the life well lived. And the Bible is an amazing help in that journey. Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Kevin, go ahead, man. Well, I was just thinking about a, a concept. I was having a conversation with a, a buddy of mine and 
and, and I know that you know you're you're a bona fide scholar and everything, but I went to preaching school at, at a Church of Christ for two years, and so um, you know that I, I'm very qualified to speak on philosophy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that that was that was that was sarcasm. Yeah, so. that that was sarcasm. That was sarcasm. So, but one of the things that I was I was talking to a buddy of mine about is just how we apply the Bible and use that love principle and the wisdom principle, and how that's going to look different to different people constantly, continuously, forever. And, you know, for example, if I'm, if I love my wife and I'm going to take her, let's say her favorite restaurant is Red Lobster. Well, part of loving her is, is taking her, for example, to Red Lobster, because that's a place she really likes. Well, my buddy, his, his wife is allergic to, to shellfish and she can't stand Red Lobster. So in order for him to love his spouse, that's going to look completely different in many ways. And I know that's a very simple illustration, but it just shows that when people say, oh, the Bible is this legislative book that we go to and everybody's always going to look the same and apply it the same, it, it usually is going to look quite differently when we are applying these 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 principles of kindness and love, and and especially when we're looking to our spouses and our friends and those that we really love. And so I, I, don't, I think most people, they're, if, if they're open to, to looking at how they're already applying the Bible, what you're saying is really not that different. It's just opening them up to look at it a little bit more further. Yeah, I, I think it is something we already do. And, you know, Jesus says in, in Matthew 22 that the whole Bible hangs on these two things, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on those two. So then the question, okay, well, then that's the filter through which we need to read the Bible. Is this lens of love? Okay, well, what is love? And the problem with that question is it's not black and white, as you're just describing. Is love is relational and it's contextual, and I might add incarnational. It can't be defined outside the context of a relationship. And so, uh, you know, we have these principles that we've maybe gleaned over time, but that doesn't always hold water. What, what is loving for you isn't always what's loving for me. And I, I actually say, I think in the book, that's the, the challenge, the problem with the golden rule. You know, being able to treat others the way I want to be treated is looking at things through my lens. But not everyone has the same lens. Not everyone has the same thing. That's like saying, I'm only going to feed my kids what I eat. Whether they're six months old or four years old or 20, I'm just, because that's the golden rule. You know, feed your children all, only what you would want to eat. Um, and that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, no, so we have to we have to have a different we have to have a different rubric that's flexible, and I think that's what when people say is does, can it mean whatever we want it to mean? The answer is no, but it can be more flexible than only one way. Well, it has. Well, and to I'm be. really glad. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm really glad that you just said that because that's the fear that so many people have, and I think that's why so many people resist, especially in, in our tradition, tend to resist the idea of love being expressed as a form of wisdom and growing in that wisdom and application. And there being some, some nebulous aspects to that, that are subjective because we tend to not like subjectivity. It's like you said in your book, you're a black and white guy. You like things in black and white. And I tend to be that way too, but I'm appreciating those shades of gray that God has put into this world. But naturally people are going to go even further and say, well, does that mean that love is whatever we want it to be? Does that mean that truth then by extension is whatever we want it to be? I mean, are the doors open to interpret scripture any way we wish so long as it's an expression of what we perceive love to be? 
uh, can we make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean and whatever suits us? Well, and, and you know, what's funny is you say, I like that you say, we do this already, is go to any church on a Sunday morning, and if the, if the preacher references an iPhone or social media or anything like that, we've already made the Bible mean something it never was intended to mean. I don't see any iPhones in the Bible. I don't see the Bible talking about addiction to Facebook and Twitter or, um, you know, some of the, you know, what does the Bible, what does Jesus have to say about wearing a mask during a pandemic? Jesus had nothing to say about that. Like, yeah. literally, there is nothing. You mean, you mean be still and know that I'm God? It's not talking about turning your TV and phone off? <laughs> it is not. It is not. That is not what was originally Man. intended. I hate to break it Man. to you. I hate to break doing? it to you. What are you doing? You're just so, ripping my whole theology apart tonight. So not. I think that's the that's the challenge is I want us to face up to the dishonesty of that we say what I don't, you know, whenever I do it, it's faithful to the Bible, but whenever you do it, because you're coming to conclusions that I don't like, then you're doing you're you're playing fast and loose, and we can't make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. We can only mean what it was originally intended to mean, which is what I am espousing. And if and we that, just dig a little bit under the surface, we see that that's just not true. Well, and that just goes back to what we were just talking about a few moments ago. It's it's that idea that we have elevated ourselves and our understanding of Scripture to that level of infallibility and inerrancy that should be reserved for God and God alone, because God is the only entity within all of existence that has a God's eye, omniscient view over everything. It's impossible for any man, no matter, or woman, no matter how long they would ever live to be able to learn everything that there possibly is to know and understand all things specifically as they are. We don't have the capability of doing that. And we don't have the capability of shucking our own lenses and viewing everything through that objective lens. We are all shaded by our experiences. And I love how you, how you talk about the experiences in the book and, and you quote Richard Rohr in the book, how he says that, you know, our, our approach to the the scriptures is is in interpreting the scriptures is like a tricycle you have the front wheel of experience that drives the whole thing and then you have tradition and the scriptures as the rear wheels and i may have butchered that completely but you know no. opt for you then opt for a fourth wheel in, yes in the yeah. book yeah well, tell i, us I about opt for that. the yeah yeah the fourth I, wheel i'm, I'm of, passing that to you brother <laughs> yes uh well you nailed it you nailed the the first three um, and and all apologies, and I mean it in no uh, disrespectful way to one up Richard Rohr by adding a wheel. You know, um, I, I would encourage someone else to write a book and add a fifth wheel if need be. Um, yes, but for me, the fourth wheel is community, and I like this because in some ways it it is the answer to the question of can we make things to mean whatever we want them to mean, and we usually mean that in some individualistic sense. But we have to be faithful to these four things. We are faithful to our own experiences. We are faithful to our traditions. We're faithful to the Bible. And we're faithful to our community. And it's the truth is in that intersection of those four things. Those are the boundaries by which we willingly uh, submit ourselves as we try to discern together what the Spirit of God is doing in the world. And I think that's really important that we have those four and we don't have the unicycle of faith, which is just the Bible alone, which seems to be very unstable. 
Yeah. And, and it is, and it really makes people uncomfortable whenever we think about that concept, because those parameters and those boundaries are going to shift as culture changes. Mm -hmm. And we tend to like things monolithic as people. We tend to like things to be structurally sound and secure and unshakable and unmovable. And though Christ in Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the principle of loving God and loving neighbor are principles that undergird this concept of truth and how we pursue it, that is unchangeable. That will remain over time and that that is unshakable. But those other parameters of experience and tradition mm-hmm. and community, those things change with every generation, which means we need to do then the hard work of deciphering what that means for us and how do we put that in, how do we put that to work in our own lives in a good, real productive way that, that is beneficial to our generation and the next. Yeah. There's a, it's a simple way of saying it. You know, the Bible doesn't change. The Bible is very clear and, and the meaning of the Bible is very clear um, through this lens of love that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, uh, heart, soul, and mind, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That doesn't change. The question is, what does that mean for us today? That's what changes the definition. And that's why I like the concept of love, and I like the concept of truth, because what is true today wasn't what was true 800 years ago, because 800 years ago what was true was that we were the center of the solar system and the sun revolved around us. That was true. That's not true now. And the same goes for love, that what was loving— what was what was loving as a parent 25 years ago and 100 years ago and now and 50 years from now that will be different yeah send your kid to work in the barn go throw hay i know you're 8 years old and you'll probably <laughs> yeah. get crushed under some heavy machinery but go operate that machinery if you lose an arm it'll be okay you've got 17 other brothers that can go out there and do the work if if something happens to you no you're exactly right about that But even then, another thing that you discuss in your book is you talk about that idea of using this framework to creatively interpret the Bible, and and you present good precedent for this idea in there. But I know for a fact within the tradition, within the churches of Christ, that is, oh man, you're treading on mighty thin ice at that point, because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that that we need to learn not to think beyond what is written. So whenever you we talk about these concepts and we look at the natural progression of where that goes and what that looks like, the idea of thinking beyond or living beyond or applying beyond what is written is super uncomfortable for people. So how would we do that? And, and what would that mean within that context? Because it seems that what you're saying makes a lot of sense within the book, but how do we reconcile that with what Paul says about not thinking beyond what is written? Like, what's what's the rub there? Yeah, I mean, I think the the great irony of that, first of all, is that this is written in the New Testament, so Paul couldn't have at all been referring to First Corinthians when he said this. <laughs> True. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's would be my first thought. Um, is if we're going to apply that, then the New Testament's got to go. So yeah. I would rather us actually follow in the example of Paul and follow in the example of Jesus, who went beyond those things in the Old Testament. And we have to recognize that this is situated within a rabbinic culture where going beyond was everyday practice. It's how we made things relevant for our generation, not through disrespecting the old by saying, "Oh no, that's not what it really meant." 
No one ever erased the old rabbis and said, oh, they were wrong. Let's erase it. No, they said, you have heard it said, and then you had heard it said that rabbi such and such said it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. And we build onto these these layers, and that's the ladder that connects us from one generation to the next. So we have to learn not how to disrespect or dismiss what's gone before us, but to root ourselves in it. But then we also then must bear our own fruit so that those can be the roots of the next generation. And that's how the rabbinic tradition would have gone. That's what we find Jesus and Paul falling into, and I think that's a great example for us. Well, and— and one thing I would like to add, because I used to use this verse all the time, which is a horrible proof text, a horrible proof text. And when you look at what Paul continues to go on to say, the reason he's telling them not to think beyond what is written is because he doesn't want them to be puffed up. And so I would actually pose the idea that when we are applying love in our culture, that's going to change. And even within the same culture, uh, you know, I pointed out the example earlier of where I may take my wife out to eat versus where you may take your spouse out to eat, how that's looks different. Part of love is, is constantly applying that differently and it very situationally. And so I don't really know if that is thinking or going beyond what is written. If we understand that this love principle is what it's all about, that's still in a sense, staying within the whole principle of, of love, because Paul's whole point is don't get puffed up with knowledge. Don't get puffed up by coming in here and thinking you're better than somebody else. And so really this whole idea of not thinking about what is written, I believe, and, and I write about this some in my book, that that's what a lot of the churches of Christ specifically have done. And I'm sure you would agree the Baptists have done that as well is because what we have done is we have we have been puffed up by truly going beyond what is written and then projecting that onto the Bible, saying we have divine authority. Are you there, brother? Did we lose you? Oh, so sorry about that. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's so important to have the context for these verses when we're reading them, because we can take them to mean the, the irony, right? That the people who would lob against me the idea that I, I am making the Bible mean whatever I want it to mean are using verses out of context to mean something else than what the, it was originally intended to mean. So in some ways, they are doing the very thing that they are claiming that I'm doing, but <laughs> yeah. they have this justification for it. Exactly. So, well, yeah, by using 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to say you're going beyond what is written, you're actually, you know, not you, but the person using that's going beyond what is written by using that in a way it's not meant to be. So in doing so, they're actually— exactly. Ironically, the one's guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, in, in Ephesians 4, which is where we started, this phrase, telling the truth in love, if we read that in the context, it's in the context of unity, and it actually begins that chapter with Paul using that same phrase that we do something in love in the first six verses when he says we bear with one another's burdens in love. And so we can't say we can speak the truth in love outside the context of bearing with one another in love. And he talks about these other characteristics like patience and in humility. And we have to be able to recognize that those are just as important in this conversation or else we can then use it as a weapon. We rip it from its context to use, be used for good and for love, and we use it again because we're human beings, and this is our natural inclination, as a weapon to guard against others so that I can feel right and secure and be puffed up. Well, and we've even used love as a weapon. We've weaponized the idea of love, going back to 
Ephesians 4.15 again, kind of what you really unpack throughout your whole book, which I hope everybody listening will uh, buy a copy of it because, you, you know, we're just kind of hitting on some highlights in this, in this episode, but you, when you believe, when you're, when you believe that truth is all that matters, you're willing to treat somebody very unloving. I mean, you can do whatever you want to, to somebody and believe that you're doing it in love. And that's what's scary about it because I know for myself, I was vicious, man. I was very, very vicious. And I really, truly, though, looking back, had the best of intentions. I really did. I thought I was doing the right thing. And we see that with Paul as well, how he thought he was doing the right thing. And it's easy when we can convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing and that ultimately, no matter what, as long as we're doing the truth, that is love. Usually you see violence followed with that. And and we see that with, with Paul. We see that with people throughout our ages, you know, throughout the culture, how the most convicted Christians on, on who believe they were doing the loving thing are the ones who've promoted the most atrocious acts in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly um I think that's exactly right. And maybe to make it less severe and relatable to how we weaponize love in the service of truth, I think of the verses in 2 Peter in chapter 1, uh, verses 5 to 8. So I'm going to I'm going to read this because it was a helpful in in my book um as I was thinking about it. It says, "For this reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge." and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. So love is the pinnacle of this building block, this ladder that we're going from uh, faith to goodness, from goodness to knowledge. But for me growing up, I did this uh, I did this sleight of hand where that wasn't how I practiced my knowledge. When I got to the knowledge part, I skewed it. So I said, you know, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Yeah, that's good. And goodness, knowledge. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. And add to your knowledge this need to be right. And to that need to be right, the belief that God's on my side. And to the belief that God's on my side, the belief that being right is loving. And that's the sleight of hand. Now being right is loving because God's on my side. And that's why it's so important that I started the whole book with humility if we don't have a, a, a humility about our beliefs, it's going to be very hard to emphasize love over truth because that's the equation by which being right is loving. And telling people the truth, which is the same as saying my truth, is the loving thing to do. Yeah, and essentially you're, you're, you conflate then truth with opinion, and you talk about a lot about that in your book and how whenever we use this construct or this idea of speaking the truth in love, it's really more accurate and more apropos to say that I'm speaking my opinion in love. But even then, it might not even be in love because if I share my opinion and I'm being mean about it, well, then it's not really truth. You, you, you make a really strong point that truth without love is not really truth at all in biblical terms. And if mm-hmm. you all want to hear more about that out there in podcast land, you're just going to have to pick up a copy of the book and read it because we're approaching the end of our time together. And um, what do you, I, I guess as a final question, um, two things. Number one, what do you hope most readers are going to take away from your book? What kind of impact do you want it to have? And secondly, is there anything else that you would like to say or share with us before we bring this to a close? Well, I mean, 
the first is I think this is the beginning of a conversation about what love is and what it means. This isn't an exposition on all of that. Um, it's it's a way to help us start to turn our attention away from the arguments, the endless debates, and to say, how can we in our everyday life enact more love rather than more criticism or more debate or more challenge on that intellectual level? And so my hope for people to take away from the book is that they would engage these people in their lives, their loved ones, their acquaintances, the people on social media, with a uh, with more compassion and the recognition that how we are coming across is just as important as what's coming out of our mouths, if not important, when it comes to the ultimate goal of world building, uh, a place of peace and a place of connection, a place of belong- belonging and love and all the things that we want, that we would recognize that the tools we're using isn't getting us any closer to the goal that we imagine. No, I think that couldn't have been said any better. I mean, 33,000 denominations, it, it speaks to the idea of how the idea of truth is being mispursued and misappropriated. And it has been for a long time. And if we get back to that idea about, about love then, and we love well, and we learn how to love each other well, and we learn how to respect one another. And that doesn't mean that we can't have any differences whatsoever, but we learn to lean into those differences and embrace those differences in one another and recognize that in spite of them, that we are still God's people, that we are still God's image bearers, and we are still loved by him. Reciprocating that love to our fellow man is the ultimate highest form in which we reciprocate that love back unto God himself. Mm -hmm. And I think, Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I, I really appreciate the fact that you made mention of how this is just a conversation starter, because for a lot of people, this is going to take a long time to accept, and it's going to take our whole lives, and we'll never really get it right. <laughs> that's that's kind of the whole point of love, is we're constantly learning. I mean, if, if you look at all of the relational examples that we see in Scripture, you know, I'm never going to be a perfect husband. Um, but I'm constantly going to try to learn more about how I can love my wife better. And sometimes that's going to change. And, and it's constantly trying to figure out how to, to relate to her more and better. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I have really struggled with, and it appears you did too from your book, is equating love with law. Love and law were pretty much the same thing. And I wouldn't even say not just equating. I would even go further and say, law is is more important than love almost because in in my book before i changed you really couldn't have love unless you had law down properly and one of the first passages that i read that really rocked my world is in second chronicles 30 with hezekiah and here you have all these jews coming back and it says that they took the passover contrary to what was written and then they went ahead and took it an additional week and yet in second chronicles 30 it says that that god accepted this and hezekiah he, he prayed for, on their behalf, and he interceded and asked that God look to their hearts, and God did. And God loved them. They loved God. And it said there's never been a greater feast and a greater celebration in all of Israel than what happened then. And, you know, I, I find it ironic, and it was very difficult for me to read, especially when I still had my legalistic lenses on, that the most celebrated day was the day when they did things contrary to the law. And yet God loved them and God accepted them despite that. And, you know, that really just shows love trumps law every single, every single time. And until we see that, 
as you put it, love matters more. We're going to be trapped in this in this constant, uh, you know, just circle and merry-go-round of of trying to just get everything right. And and I want to read one more thing um, quote from your book. And I love this was my favorite thing you said in your whole book that really resonated with me. You said I ended up hurting a number of people before I realized just how wrong I had been about Christianity. I thought the best Christians were the ones who knew the most. It turns out that the best Christians are the ones who love the most, regardless of what they know or don't know. That That is, I mean, that is almost just word-for-word word Bible right there. <laughs> I mean, that's that sounds like something Jesus would say, Jared. And I mean, it's just a fantastic statement that you said, because that's what it's all about. And there's so many examples we see. I mean, you know, I thought of Luke 7 when, uh, with Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman and how Simon was like, what are you doing letting this sinful woman in? You know, I'm this I'm this great law keeper and she's this sinner. And Jesus said, yeah, but she loved me more. She loved me with everything she had. And I mean, what you're saying is so biblical. And that that's what frustrates me sometimes with people when they hear these types of conversations. Oh, you guys just really don't care about God. You don't really care about, you know, following Jesus. It's like, no, this is... This is anything but shallow. What you're presenting is anything but shallow. It is much deeper than the legalistic religious system I was raised to believe. It, in fact, this is so much more difficult to live out than just coming to church and making sure I'm worshiping correctly. Right. No, I think you just you I think you nailed that uh, perfectly. I think that's exactly my intention and I would agree. I think it's a harder life to live. At least I found that it is. Well, and I think Kevin and I have found that too, but it's certainly more rewarding and it certainly seems to be more in keeping with what the scriptures reveal and what the spirit reveals about who Jesus is and what he really wants for his followers, the kind of people he wants his followers to be. So as, as we wrap this up, where can people find more of your work? Where can people find more uh, information about you, more of the projects you're involved in? Do you have anything coming down the pike that people need to keep their eyes out on? Go ahead and throw your shameless plugs in here nice. as we uh, bring this to a close. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, I would appreciate anyone picking up the book Love Matters More, and you could pick that up wherever you get books online. My website is uh, jaredbias.com, so you can go there as well. I have a newsletter if you wanted to sign up for that in terms of keeping up with projects that I'm working on. But I mostly do a lot of my work in partnership with uh, my friend Pete, and we do that work at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. We have podcasts, but we also have courses and uh, videos that go up every week and all kinds of stuff, conversations. We have a Slack group um, with a, you know several hundred people, I think, at this point, uh, talking about the Bible, talking about faith and wrestling through all these things. So I encourage you to check that out as well. Fantastic. Jared, once again, brother, thank you so much yeah, for being you, on this podcast. I mean, you, like me, you have a wife and four kids. You're a busy man. And Kevin and I appreciate your time tremendously well, when, for coming when on Lee our said, little podcast. When Lee said you were coming on, I'm like, okay, how much is he charging? Because, you know, I'm like, man, you know, we, we act like we know the Bible. And I'm like, wow, we're actually having a real Bible student, a, a bona fide Bible student on our podcast. This is awesome, man. So we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, just your humility and your love uh, from everything I know about you and read about you. I mean, this is something you really live and it's something that that you try to demonstrate. And uh, man, we just really appreciate it. I just uh, second what Lee said. Thank you. Yes, Thank sir. You. 
yeah, hopefully we can have you on again in the future. So we want to go ahead and never dismiss without thanking our ever-present listeners. We thank you all. We appreciate all of you. Like us on Facebook, even though Kevin's not on there anymore. Uh, share this podcast with your friends. Like our page, interact with us. If you have any questions, any concerns, anything at all, reach out to us anytime. Our email's in the uh, information section about this podcast. And we look forward to uh, joining you once again on our next episode.